The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Good morning, Bridge Bible Church. My name is Dan Radke, and I, I serve with Ambassador College of Bible Ministry down in Hudson, Wisconsin. And on behalf of my wife, Rachel, and our two kiddos, who will be here a little bit later, uh, we want to say we are so happy to be with you all here today and to look around and see so many familiar faces and faces of a few new people that we don't know that hopefully we have the chance to meet And I want to thank the elders for this invitation to come and open God's word with you. I am eager to do so. So, you know, it's a very common human desire to want to ascend, to go up, right? You think about how many of us want to rise above our challenges. We want to avoid a downward spiral, Or you think about how the typical worker wants to climb the corporate ladder, wants to rise in their career. You think about many rags-to-riches stories in which somebody rises up and is then gets to a place at a prominent place. Or on the flip side, sobering stories of a great leader who falls. Just broadly, if things are going well in our life, we can say something like, things are on the up. Or we might say, you know, I'm feeling down if things aren't going well. And so we have this kind of common language of ascending. Well, in the Bible story, one of the key moments is when Jesus ascends. And so I want to look just briefly here. It should be on the screen. The main passage found in the book of Acts that narrates Jesus ascending. So let's look at that. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It's not our main passage here this morning, but we want to see this. Luke writes, As they were looking on, that is the disciples, the apostles that had been with Jesus, they had seen him die, rise again. He's been with them for 40 days. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you look into the heavens? And of course, if we were there, we would be staring with mouths wide open too, wouldn't we? But he, he continues, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so here we have this account of Jesus being lifted up, ascending. Now, If you look in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be going. And of course, he promises to send a helper, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. In what we just read, we see this is happening. He has ascended. He's left them just staring into the sky. And they, and us as readers, might be tempted to think, Well, now he's far away. He's distant. Is he detached? And so this morning, 
as we look at our main passage, which is going to be in the book of Hebrews, I want us to get some answers to that question. We're going to see that Jesus ascending, leaving his earthly disciples, is good news for them and for us. Now, another big question that I want to seek to answer this morning is this question. What is Jesus doing right now? Now, I think many of us could answer pretty well what Jesus did in the past. Things like coming to earth as a baby, living a sinless life, having an amazing public ministry, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing many, showing immense kindness. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And then going to a cross, dying in the place of our sins. And that's just a summary. So many of us could have a good summary of this is what Jesus did when he was on the earth. And I think a lot of us have a decent idea of when Jesus comes back, here's what he'll do, even if we don't have all the details sorted out. But have you ever thought about what is Jesus doing right now? Right now, as we are here gathered together to worship him. What is he doing right this very moment? Well, I invite you to turn, if you have a Bible, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And there's also a Bible there in the chair in front of you. And uh, I know I speak on behalf of the bridge that if you don't have a Bible here this morning, uh, consider that one a gift from the church. But Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, the author of Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Do you hear that? Passed through the heavens, ascend. Here it is. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to set this passage in context, and then we're basically going to look at three questions that we're going to answer as we walk through this passage here together. So first, some context. Uh, I don't know if this is your first time in the book of Hebrews or a lot of times, but this is a book in which the author keeps repeating over and over again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, why that emphasis? Well, the original audience to which this book was written was suffering. They were tempted to turn away from God. Some had been put in prison. Others had had their property plundered, but all had a faith that was weakened. And they needed this reminder over and over again. Jesus is better. Better than anything you've experienced before. Better than any other alternative the world has to offer. Jesus is better. And the book as a whole, and our passage that we just read here this morning, have sort of two kind of ways of communicating. It has both words of explanation 
and then words of exhortation. It's, it's kind of like as you go through the book, the author is like on a two-lane highway, and he's constantly swerving from one lane to the next. He doesn't always use his blinker, at least not as fast as we might like sometimes. And he's just going from explanation, exhortation, explanation, back and forth. And we're going to see that here in this passage this morning. And if you look back at chapter, um, Hebrews chapter 3, and then most of Hebrews chapter 4, right before our passage this morning, it, the author has talked about the generation of the Israelites back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy, where they had been in the wilderness. God had promised that they would, he, he offered them going to the promised land, and they almost got there, but they didn't because of their unbelief. And so their example is a grave warning to us not to miss the opportunity to accept the gift of salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ. And then right before the verses we just read are verses 12 and 13, two verses about the Bible. Let's look at those because that's important context for what we've got. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I'm assuming you've probably heard these verses, especially verse 12, they're often kind of taken as sort of an abstract statement about the Bible, that it's powerful and the word of God is powerful. It's alive. It's at work among us. But these two verses are in this context where a warning just came. And here's, I think, what's going on. Take God's word seriously so that when you hear him, notice in verse 13, it goes right from the word of God to his sight right? God speaks in his word. And as he speaks through his word, we must listen. So take care that when the word of God is before you, it's received with belief in your heart. Don't just be here, but a doer as well. So we see this warning. You read in chapter three, you get to chapter four, the word of God, there's a seriousness here. But how do we do that? How do we Take it so seriously. How do we believe and hold fast to what's being offered to us? Well, right after we have the two verses we just read is our passage, and immediately we meet Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus. So when we come to God's word, really for any passage, and we're going to do it for this passage this morning, you can ask three different questions, and that's what we're going to do. The first question is, who are we from the passage? The second question is, who is Jesus? What is revealed about him in this passage? And thirdly, in light of Jesus, and there's always good news about Jesus, how are we to respond? What we ought to do? Or for our passage this morning, what difference does having Jesus so, first question, who are we? You know, if I were to walk up to one of you and say, who are you? Uh, you might respond with your name. 
Or you might start talking to me about relationships that you have. You might say, well, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a grandparent, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Or you might start talking about your job or what you do. You work for so-and-so or these are my hobbies or I'm a student or whatever it might be. But I, I doubt very many of us would respond with the following four characteristics that this passage gives us. If you were talking to me, especially if you didn't know me that well, you probably wouldn't say these things, and I probably wouldn't either to a stranger. This passage cuts through our answers of who are you to very vulnerable depths, to where each one of us is, if we would be honest. And that's kind of the point here this morning, is be honest before the Lord with him of who you are. Don't pretend that you're something that you're not. So what are these? There's four characteristics, and we're going to go through them super fast. But, but look at verse 15. We, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's the first point, is that we are weak. Now, I bet some of us this morning might feel that physically. Maybe you've been battling with an illness or maybe you're not as young as you once were, and you feel this morning, I feel weak. But weak here isn't just about physical strength. So look at also in verse 15, that Christ is in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we're weak, but we're, we're tempted. Right? Temptations and entice us in our heart to, to do or say things that are contrary to God's will. And every day presents us with a lot of those kinds of tests. And if we're honest, we fail a lot more than we would often admit. We're weak, we're tempted. But look at the end of verse 16 that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Need. We're needy. We're in need of God all the time. I mean, as I stand here this morning, as you sit, as you're watching online, you're in need of this breath and the next one, right? We are dependent upon God even for our very breath, moment by moment. But we also feel the weakness. We feel the temptations that it would go easier for us if we just didn't take following Jesus all that seriously, especially when we're around other people or certain kinds of people. Maybe some we're tempted to even throw in the towel. We're in need of God's grace all the time. And then the fourth one is sort of, it's implied in verse 15. Jesus is, in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin, so what is implied there? We sin. Jesus is like us in every way, but not sin, which we have. And so we are weak, we are tempted, we are needy, we sin. And in light of this bleak picture, we need to see Jesus afresh. We need to see him for who he is, be reminded of who we have by faith. And so that's the second question. Who is Jesus in this passage? So look again here, verses 14 and 15. Actually, I'll just read the first part of 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. So that reference there to a high priest goes 
back to the Old Testament, right? The high priest was someone that with sacrifices, with prayers, their whole goal was to present you to God so that you might enjoy God's favor and forgiveness. And in fact, the whole very existence of why there was a high priest was because of the human need that we have for access to God. We are sinners. God is holy. We need this in-between to bridge this gap. And so we have Jesus. He is our high priest. And this theme of Jesus as high priest, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews or if you're not, I invite you to read the book. It's a, it's a massive theme developed the next several chapters of the book. Like the high priests in the Old Testament, Jesus offers a sacrifice. And he offers himself as the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice. That was very different than human high priests in the Old Testament who were themselves needed sacrifices to cover their sins and would constantly do the work, just covered over for a while. But Jesus offers himself. And he also prays, intercedes for his people. I just want to share just a, a, a couple verses from John 17. John 17 is, is rightly called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And here's just a few things he says. Starting in verse 11, just part of it. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. So here you have Jesus, God in the flesh, praying to God the Father. And he says, keep them in your name. Speaking about his, his people. He says, I have given them your word and the word and the world has, has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you hear his heart in that? And then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so we have Jesus, our great high priest. But the author of Hebrews continues. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, ascended. See, all the high priests in the Old Testament, they lived for a while and then they died. They are long gone. But our high priest is very much alive and well. And I've recently become aware and, and begin to see how Christ's ascension that he rose into heaven is actually all over the New Testament. I just want to give you just a few of many examples from the book of Hebrews that show, okay, I get the concept, but, but what's the significance? So um, here's kind of as a whirlwind tour, here's just a few verses. I'm going to read them quickly. Here's what, how often it's mentioned and some of the significance. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Kind of in the middle, toward the end, it says, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So after Jesus accomplished the great high priestly work and offering himself, he dies, he's buried, he rises again, and he then, in ascending, sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or chapter 2, verse 9, it says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. He's seated in the heavenly places, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. Look at 
our passage this morning again. Chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Or look at chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So one of the things that the author of Hebrews talks about is, remember in the book of Exodus, there's these detailed instructions that God gives Moses and says, build this tabernacle, right? And then later it would be the temple. And it's very, very detailed, and they have to follow it direction by direction. And, and really what that is, is Hebrews makes it clear that that was just a pattern that was built on earth, kind of like a model of the real heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus has entered there between the holiest place of the earthly tabernacle and the other parts was a curtain. Jesus has entered through that curtain where he's gone as our forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or look at chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. Christ holds his priesthood permanently. He's not going to die. Be replaced by somebody else because he continues forever. That's why. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing right now? He's praying constantly, 24-7 for his church, for his people. He's praying. He's interceding. He's pleading your case, believer, before God all the time. His ministry didn't finish at the cross. That decisive work propelled him forward to continue to minister on our behalf all the time. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Or look at the next one. I, I know there's a lot here. It's kind of the point. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, again, the earthly tabernacle, a model of the real thing in heaven. He entered, verse 12, once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So when Christ ascended and he's entered into the holy places, he's brought with him his blood, which pleads, forgiven, forgiven, for all who receive that gift. Look at chapter 9, verse 24. Christ has entered. Are you seeing the theme here repeated over and over? Not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. There it is. But in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Or chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Or chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the last one, chapter 12, verse 25. Here we go from explanation, a little bit of exhortation here again. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, it's talking about God who spoke, uh, spoke from heaven at Mount Sinai and the earth trembled and it shook, much less will we escape if we reject him, that is, Jesus, who warns from heaven. That's just a sampling. <laughs> there's actually more in the book of Hebrews and there's lots more within the, book of, or within the New Testament as a whole. But here's the point. Jesus is our ascended high priest. He is exalted. He's in the heavenly places at God's right hand on the throne. He always lives to make intercession for his people. Praying 24-7. Never ceases. He never grows weary, never slumbers. This is amazing. Look back at verse 14. There's more. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now this phrase, the Son, within the book of Hebrews is used in at least two ways. First, Son was what a king in the line of David, so that great king of Israel in the Old Testament, to whom God said, hey, one day I'm going to give you a descendant who's going to reign on this throne of yours forever. Okay, so that's the David in the Old Testament. But the, the idea of a son is what a king in that line would, would be called when he took the throne. God could say, like he says in Psalm 2-7, today I've begotten you, which actually the author of Hebrews tells us twice that God the Father says of Jesus the Son, today I've begotten you. What does that mean? Well, it means something like this. You are installed as a human king to rule over humans, over my covenant people, representing me. And of course, we know that Jesus fulfills this role as the messianic king for his people. He has sat down in the throne of heaven and his throne is forever and ever. And then there's the second meaning of the son, which most of us are more familiar with, is that he's always existed, right, as God the son, the son of God. So Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus has always existed as God the son. But what's, what's amazing is you, you take what we, we've already looked at, you take it, he's the son of God, he's the ascended high priest, he's the son of God, you bring those together and we see this amazing glory that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is the God-man who sits at the right hand of God the Father, reigning, pleading your case, being high priest for us right now. Believer. This is who you have. We have Christ. But there's more. Look again at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a double negative. For we do not have one who is unable to sympathize. Uh, put it in the positive we have a high priest who can sympathize. Limitless compassion for you and me. 
We've talked glorious things. Jesus is high and lifted up. And we read those kinds of statements and we may again be tempted to think, maybe like those early disciples were, uh, is he detached? I mean, can he really help me in my weaknesses, in my temptations, in my need, in my sin? Really? And this verse reminds us that Jesus is able to help us because he was made like us in every respect, in every significant way that matters. Jesus was made like us, but not without, or without sin. In other words, Jesus didn't pretend to be human. He wasn't really a ghost that had this kind of temporary skin on. No, Jesus really became embodied. If you were around in his earthly ministry days and you had poked really hard his arm, you would feel skin. And he could say, ouch, because he would feel that poke. He really is human. And Jesus himself has experienced human weaknesses. He hungered. He grew tired. He saw diseases and ailments all around him. He wept. He's experienced temptations from Satan, from his enemies, even his own disciples. Lots of opportunities where he could have said, I'm going to walk a different path than the one that God has given me to go to the cross and die. This plan that we had forever. Lots of temptations that he had to abandon. In fact, here's what's true. You think about it. Jesus has faced more social and spiritual pressure to not hold fast than you and I ever will. You think about how much Satan wanted to defeat this son of God. He's faced more, Jesus has faced more pressure than we ever have. Now, we think about, okay, he's without sin. Well, does that mean that he doesn't get us? He can't help us. Well, I, I love how one commentator helpfully explains this point. Quote, what we and they, the original audience, needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. Jesus never let his temptation cross into sin. He always resisted. Whereas we often give in quicker than we'd like to admit. But Jesus never did. He endured the full face of temptation all the way, never giving in. And that's exactly who we needed to be qualified as a high priest, one who hasn't failed so he can stand in our place his righteousness could be given to us who do fail all the time. See, it's right to say that Jesus knows your condition even better than you yourself know. Because he faithfully endured every hardship and was always without sin, he at every step of the way knows how to help you. Right now, he sympathizes with you with an understanding that a fellow sufferer has. So believer, you may be facing a very difficult situation right now. Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Jesus is your ascended high priest. You may be facing a significant loss or disappointment. Jesus is interceding for you right 
now. Jesus is your ascended high priest. You may be reeling from a sin that someone's committed against you or maybe something that you did. Jesus is interceding for you right now. Jesus is your ascended high priest. Whatever you're facing, Jesus is interceding for you and Jesus is your ascended high priest. He gets you and he has limitless compassion. One more glorious glimpse of Jesus. Look at verse 16. Read it again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what, I, what we need to see here about Jesus is that Jesus is at the throne. Remember chapter 12, verse 2, we had the whirlwind tour of verses, and it said that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is there, and that's why we can go so freely there, because he's already there for us. I, I love this quote. This comes from a book called The Ascension, Humanity in the Presence of God, and uh, the authors write this, quote, Diplomats and reporters sometimes talk about our man in Washington. For Christians, Jesus is our man in heaven. He is there for us and on our behalf. He is our representative in heaven, securing our salvation by his presence. Right now, 24-7, for you, for me. So we've seen some of who we are. We've seen who Jesus is. What about the third question? How do we respond? What do we do in light of this Jesus? Well, I love how the passage begins. Since then, we have a great high priest. Not just there is Christ, but we have Christ by faith. We have Jesus, the Son of God. He is our access he is our confidence. And so this passage has uh, two uh, commands for us, two invitations. Look at verse 14 again, the very end of it. Let us hold fast our confession. I was you know, sitting over here worshiping with you all this morning, and I, I love the first song and the second song because they both had that. Holding fast, steadfast, right? And remember, we, we saw this back in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. The word of God, it's living and active, calling us to hold fast this confession. Well, what is confession here? It's just simply faith in Christ. This is the command to hold fast to the true teaching about Jesus. Persevere in faith in him. And this, you know, revelation that we've seen, it's, it's not primarily about what we feel about him because our feelings are fickle sometimes mislead us, but it's what's revealed by God to us in the pages of Scripture that is sure all the time. Hold fast means something like this. Uh, imagine that you're, you're holding a, a treasure of some kind and you see someone running towards you. They're about to take it. Well, what do you do? You hold fast. You retain your grip on this thing, right? And as they're coming close, you grip all the harder you hold fast. And of course, assumed in this whole passage is that there's opposition to holding fast. It's challenging. There's pressure to waver. How are you responding when there's 
a relational cost or a, a social cost in following Jesus. And you feel the pressure to, to kind of ease up and say, it's too much. I, I, I'd rather be at ease with this person and not really talk about Jesus. I, I'm going to loosen up my confession right now. Or how are you responding not just to outside pressures, but, but the reality of sin that's in our hearts still that lies to us and says things like, hey, the glories and pleasures of this world, whoo, pretty enticing. They're going to give you something that Jesus won't. Lies. See, nowhere does scripture say, if you're lucky, you got the easy path to following Jesus. No, everywhere, scripture tells us that there's going to be opposition. The world will hate the radical, true follower of Jesus. There's going to be sin that we have to battle inside and ask forgiveness for and make it right, reconcile with people. We need this word, hold fast our confession. Now, at this point, maybe you're thinking, that's hard. <laughs> that's challenging. There's a lot of pressure. And a lot of places I go that uh, speaking up for Jesus is difficult, costly even. I need help. Well, that is kind of the point. We do need help. In fact, we need help as big as God, which is why there's, I think, a second command here. So look at verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what's the second idea? Come near to the throne of grace and get the timely help you need from God himself. How do we come near? Will we come near the throne of grace through faith in Christ by prayer, seeking him, calling on him, clinging to his promises in the word, praising him for who he is, what he's done. Notice what isn't said here. It doesn't say hold fast in your own strength, your own resolve. No, he says, hold fast to God by drawing near to God. He's going to give you what you need in Christ. The command here is to get your help from God and that he's eager to help us. In fact, our help comes from the very throne of God himself. And if you think about that, you think about it, you know, if you, if you had uh, lived in ancient Israel before the coming of Jesus you wouldn't tend to call the throne of God that we're talking about a throne of grace. You would have instead dwelled on things like, it's a throne of the holy, holy, holy God, which it still is. Or you would have focused on, this is a throne of ultimate authority, which it is. But because of the astonishing mercy given us in Christ, this throne is not just those things but it's the throne of grace. It's the source of grace from God himself. It's amazing that these two words, throne and grace, come together. And that we get to seek our help from God himself. Notice the word confidence. Did you see that? I've been saying draw near but that's not even strong enough. Let us then with confidence draw near. Well, what is the source of this confidence? <laughs> is it some kind of like 
faking it till you make it. You know, just, just work up confidence, get psyched out. Or, or even think, you know, hey, I'm a good person. I'm just going to kind of waltz right in. No. Remember, this is God's throne. He is holy, holy, holy. It's the very same throne from where one day we will be given an account of our lives. So our confidence as we run in isn't because God has changed his mind about his standards, about his holiness. No, in fact, we have warnings in this book and warnings throughout the scripture that there are disastrous consequences for those who try to enter God's presence without the righteousness of Christ. Warnings against taking God lightly or flippantly. So what is the source of this confidence? Well, notice the word right before it is the word then. Let us then with confidence. See, the word then is referring back to verses 14 and 15. And those two verses, as we already saw, are all about one person. Christ. Jesus has secured for his people access to God's presence. And the presence of God is not available by any other means than Jesus. It's not because you or I are good enough It's not what we bring with us as we approach. It's who is there, Christ. Christ is our confidence. He's our access to the throne of grace. He is reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And because Jesus is there, we come. So don't look to yourself for confidence. Don't look at what you've done or not done. Don't look to others for confidence. Look up and see the ascended Jesus. Because the more you see of him, the more confidence you have to draw near. Because you see his heart. So believer, don't just come. Come with confidence. We're urged to be bold. Don't limp in. Don't think that you shouldn't be there appealing to God for help. Don't think that you're wearing God out as you come again each week, each day, all the time. If you have Christ, you belong at the throne of grace. So come, enter in with joy into the presence of God. I mean, this is unbelievably good news. (laughs) You look at these two commands they go together. The first one is hold fast our confession. Well, how do we hold fast? It's hard. Well, we hold fast by drawing near to God because he's gonna help us hold fast. Christ, the God-man, is there interceding right now. And so we cry out, help me in my weakness. Help me resist temptation. Help me treat the word of God for what it is. And we find that we get the help that we need from the very throne of God himself who gives mercy and grace to help you. So we've been talking a lot this morning about having Christ. And if you're new here this morning or you're not quite sure about this Christianity thing, this relationship with Jesus, maybe you've been around a while but you're still not quite sure. You you need to know that you don't receive Christ, you don't have Christ just simply by showing up. 
or simply by doing religious things or trying really hard to be good or you know, staying true to what you think is right or following a version of Jesus that isn't the Jesus revealed in Scripture. The first step toward Christ is when you've come to realize how utterly shocking it is that having Christ is even an option for us. It's not our right simply because we're human. God is on the throne. He's the king of the universe, reigning in justice and righteousness. He's unstained totally by sin. And us? Well, we're born as rebels. Injustice, unrighteousness, sin is our natural state. So as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, we like to live our lives living for our own self-determined purposes, as if we're in charge, as if we're the king, and we get to call the shots. Naturally, we seek to dethrone God over us, like armed rebels storming the castle of the most benevolent, amazing, good king the world has ever known, we don't deserve peace and fellowship with the king's son. So having Christ is not something that you earn or something that you deserve. Again, our natural state of sin and rebellion deserves justice, righteous indignation. He's the holy and just king. He doesn't wink at sin and we wouldn't want him to. He will right all evils one day, the one who sits on his throne. But remember verse 16. This is the throne of grace. He has announced terms of peace. Lay down your arms. Turn from your sin. The Bible calls this repentance. Bow the knee to Jesus. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only source of forgiveness for your rebellion. He has died on the cross for you, the perfect and righteous substitute in your place for your sin. Hear this good news from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, that is God the King, made him, Jesus, the Son of God, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So if you are here this morning, and Jesus isn't, your high priest. He isn't the one that you've committed your life to by turning from sin and trusting in him alone. These are the terms of peace. Be reconciled. This is a throne of grace. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus alone for our deliverance from sin, I, I invite you to leave here this morning meditating on who you have. We have Christ. He's our man in heaven. And we are his beloved people. So, hold fast your confession. With confidence, draw near to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So believer, 
Are you going to approach God's throne this week? You should. You get to. Hold fast. Because we have Christ, we have access. Hold fast your confession and draw near. And let's pray. Father, we, we have looked at such a glorious passage that shows our need spiritually and shows how you have provided to the uttermost our solution in Jesus. He has been made like us in every respect. He gets us. And he's qualified to be the one in our place because he never sinned, not even once. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that they've never seen Jesus like this, they don't know him personally, oh Lord, would you work in their heart? Would would you help them to reach out to someone to to talk more about this, to, to receive Christ, that they would have him for themselves? And Lord, for the rest of us, oh God, we confess that uh, we often don't come near. We're, we think, oh, maybe you're, maybe you've kind of gotten sick and tired of us. I just was there. Do I really have to go again? Oh Lord, help us to see your heart for us. That Christ always lives to make intercession. That he's pleading our case before you right now. And we can enter in because he's there and we receive a joyful welcome. And we can receive the mercy and the grace that we need in our time of need. And Lord, help us to see how needy we really are of you all the time. So God, thank you so much for this passage and may you continue your work in our hearts here among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.